Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 386, recorded live November 8th, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where it is dark. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Venter. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I actually saw some snow today, and I oh, crossed my fingers and pretended I didn't see it, and it went away. Oh, yeah. I, I, I don't even want to talk about the white stuff yet. Uh, this doesn't, it doesn't seem as late as it is. I mean, we're, we're really only a week or so away from Thanksgiving, and at least in the U.S., Canada already had theirs, but, oh. Yeah, it's it's getting there. I I have I think we talked about it a little bit last week, but the the trees in my yard went from green to no leaves in like two and a half weeks. So yeah, I don't have any trees, but I have tons of leaves in my yard. But uh, <laughs> I went out and mowed it three days ago. So with those big winds we had two week two days ago, most of them went back where they belong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. It's 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 winter, and then we had that time change, you know, spring forward or fall back. And, I really, uh, really can't complain, though, because I've done football every night for the last nine weeks or something on Friday nights, and I, other than torrential rains a few times, it really hasn't been bad, meaning, you know, no blistering snow slapping you in the face. No, it's been pretty nice. You know, not, yeah. not terribly, uh, not terrible, uh, Terribly cold. We had we've had a few chilly days, but we haven't had the heavy frost yet. We're we're waiting for it because that does you know the horses, which my my wife just got her newest horse this last weekend. Uh, they we like to worm them right after you get a nice hard frost. So why? Uh, because then the potential for them to pick the worms back up. Okay, have minimized. So you, yeah, so you, you you give them the we 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 uh, the worm is a paste. That you put them off. They don't do, you. We don't do the up the nose of the tube. That's right anymore. So yeah, you, you you give them to that, and then the so their body will just kind of like bleh, get rid of them all, and uh, you know they they slowly start picking them back up. So if it's in the summer and you warm them, what you still have to do, uh, they're just you know as they're eating grass. You now they they did they reintroduce them, but if you wait till you get a nice hard freeze, and that doesn't tend to do it. So and you're basically yeah. feeding them hay and stuff like that now. Or you will be. Yeah, yeah we're feed. <laughs> yeah, we we feed hay all year round. Uh, the pastures just for to keep them busy. I like to have them on pasture as much as we can, and and we will cut back a little bit. But they get grains. Actually, the biggest horse we've got, which is the half draft, is the easiest keeper. My wife tries to tell me that he eats less than the other ones. So the yeah, thoroughbreds, they just do you call them paps? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay, I was just sort of curious. I mean, between you and your horses and Mary Beth herding cows the other weekend, I don't know. I'm, I don't have any pets. I I, I sometimes envy you <laughs> with not having any pets. It's just like having we, kids we, if you have pets. I got them too. 
Well, that's what I'm saying. You, as long as you got one or the other, your hands are tied. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's always a challenge for us is getting out of town. You know, I'd, I'd like to do some trips, and now you got to find somebody to take care of the pets. Now, with the kids, the kids are old enough where they could take care of the pets. It's just whether you, huh? you don't know what's going to happen at the house when you're gone. Well, I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Derek and Eric and Karen all joined us for this week. Uh, show notes will be going out a little bit later. I, I've got them in the chat room. I pasted them all in in advance because everybody knows I can't keep up with them. But uh, Patreon, for some reason, seems to be a little bit slow. So uh, I couldn't get those out before the show. But if you if you happen to be in the chat room, you'd have seen them. And then we'll, I'll add them uh, either later today or early tomorrow into Patreon so people can follow along there. So I think our first article up is one that you gave Mac, it comes from scuba diving.com and the Moldavian police destroy the underwater art gallery. I think we, didn't we talk about this one? Well, we uh, talked about it when they weren't some better. Pictures. Yeah. We talked about when they were not destroyed. They had first put them in. Yeah. Cause the, uh, it was the artwork that was created by Jason DeCares Taylor. It was destroyed f- Friday by the Moldavian police. And this is in September. Police took down the human figures with picks, axes, saws, and ropes supporting, with support for former President Ab, Abdullah Yemen. I uh, said the police started at the Fairmont Maldives Resort, was ordered to take down the sculpture by civil order on Thursday, saying it undermines Islamic faith, peace, and order. Uh, Yemen, who failed to retain the presidency in Sunday's election, ordered the removal of statues in July after concerns were raised about the sin of worshiping idols, and predominantly Islamic nation. On Friday last week, I was extremely shocked and heartbroken to learn that my sculptures have been destroyed, um, said Akers Tyler in a statement. The Coralarium was conceived to connect humans to the environment, nurturing space for maritime life to to thrive and nothing else. Maldives is still a beautiful, warm, friendly population, but it was a sad day for art and a sad day for the environment. Some saw uh, Yemen's opposition to the corollarium as a way to gain the religious vote. Religious organization declared support for the Yemen following the raid. Uh, Ibiram Mohammed Sola won the election in what the BBC called a surprise victory. The corollarium was heralded as the first semi-submerged art gallery. It was designed to promote coral growth and allow divers and snorkelers to connect with the local marine life. I wonder what the cost was of that piece. I don't know. I know some of the underwater part they couldn't have done much with, but it's still amazing what they did do. The work featured a coral pathway, more than 60 coral pots growing 200-plus cuttings of staghorn coral. Now, I don't know what they did with that because they said the 20-foot-tall sculpture breaks the water surface but changes with the tides. So how much of the underwater stuff they did, I don't really know. Did you look at the pictorial of it? This is the uh, one I'm that's seen some a, of it. Right. This is the one that looks like a really large uh, square with decorations and, and the sides and the interior cut. So it's half in the water and looks like half out. And it looks like they were taking it apart, but I don't understand why. Because hmm. you you see what it said to uh, it used to create the calarium. 180 tons of architectural architectural elements, 66 marine-grade stainless steel panels, 
432 square meters of laser-cut stainless steel, 10 hybrid organic sculptures, six fully submerged sculptures on the seafloor, so I'm assuming they're, they're still there, six rooftop sculptures, six fully submerged poplar trees, seeming coral pathways. So how much of that did they destroy? I don't really know. But you go to another picture, and it's got where I talk about this big square with all the cutouts. If you look at it like you're a snorkeler, some of the figures, statues, are in the water. Some are almost with their heads out of the water, and some are totally out of the water. So it looks like they destroyed everything that was out of the water. Hmm. Can't imagine how much that cost. Yeah, because you're looking, that's not a small piece. That was... no. Huge. I mean, it's got to be. I mean, and considering it's art, there's the cost of materials, which materials alone would be quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, you've you've got to have, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, wouldn't you say? Uh very easily, very easily. Yeah. And then then when you add the art aspect in, because by part of it is creating this is is he's making as a habitat, but it's also an art piece, mm-hmm. and it gets covered. That's why. You know, these resorts paid to have it put in because they knew that it would extend outside of their area and people would see it and then want to you know, hear about it and then want to come and see it. Uh, which I, I looked at some of the comments on the secondary part of it and it's like, well, call small dives off my list. Doesn't sound well, like I, it's I a friendly of, place to go. No, no, I I, I kind of think the same thing. And, and they're one of them that as doing the podcast, they're the most annoying because they're constantly trying to push for publicity. I mean, you know, between Twitter and spam and email, you know, about half of the scuba spam I'd say is is related to Maldives. So yeah, yeah, just just a place you don't have to worry about. Uh, and then uh, dive to survive. Salvage divers of Myanmar push extremes. And uh, this is another article from uh, scubadiving.com. Said the 1970s shipwrecks from World War II were found at the bottom of the Myanmar uh, Yagan River. Yagan? Yangan? Yangan's probably how it's pronounced. River people living by the river in the township of Dala invented their own diving equipment and designated special dive boats to search for debris from these sunken ships. They first used bicycle pumps to push oxygen along rubber tubes in the homemade mass. Since then, they've improved their equipment. Now is using homemade gas-powered air compressors to pump the air with their handmade mass and chains to weigh them down. Myanmar salvagers can dive as deep as 200 feet in standard water for 30 minutes. Once they disappear in the brown water of the highly polluted river, they are unable to see anything at all. They can only feel with their bare hands for what is down there, searching for treasures like copper, iron, even more valuable metals, which get sold on the wealthier side of the river downtown, hang on for melting down and reuse. Income can be up to $100 per day on what they can find. Some days the divers find nothing at all. If they're lucky, they can get assignments from companies to salvage a sunken ship or do underwater work like cleaning concrete piles of a bridge. Working in crews of four to five per boat, they dive twice a day during high tide. Between 20 to 30 30 diving crews operate out of Dala. Most of them wish to have another job on solid ground, not in the water. It is a dangerous job, after all, and many have been injured during diving. But they need the money to support their family. The divers work every day just for the simplest of basic needs, food and a roof over the family's head. Sunken ships are tragedies, but for the divers, they are a means to survive. 
Did y'all look at the pictures? They're not. They're not showing up on mine. I mean, I see oh, the, the right, first this two. The one looks like he's got a full face mask with a, a hose and the chain wrapped around his body, and I mean huge link chain. And then if you look at the the water content, it looks like that material they were diving in to get. Uh, Oh, the uh, wipes away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's the river. Yeah, it, I'm I'm seeing one where the it's just it, this looks like flood water, doesn't it? Like when I was we have a flood. Why they why they dive at low tide? I mean, at high tide, not low tide. And if they're going down two hundred feet, 200. those guys have got big ones. They don't need those chains to get down. They got other big items to drag them down. Yeah. Where do you see the 200 feet? Was that up above? Yeah, you wow. went through that. Yeah, uh, salvagers can dive as deep as 200 feet and stay underwater for 30 minutes. 200 feet? Oh, yeah. Wow. This river's that deep? Well, look at the background. This looks like a huge harbor, too. I'm yeah. looking at one section up. There's big, 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 big freighters in there and some uh, very large cranes along the shoreline. Wow. Take a look real quick and see if I can get some other pictures somewhere. Yeah, because I'm seeing something, and you can see it's uh, this is like a coastal port, yep. really. Yeah. I'd be worried about traffic, too. Yeah, because I'm sure they're not slowing down for you. Yeah, and they don't have lights. They're strictly nothing. I don't even see fins on their feet. Excuse me. No, no, they're not. They're diving in what kind of shorts and a T-shirt. Yeah. And they wrap the hose around themselves three or four times and... I guess that way, if they have to pull them up, it's not its not going to be easy for them to not come with it. I don't see how it's easy to get that chain off that one guy either. He's wrapped yeah, in not... the chain. Yeah, he gets snagged. He's, he's, uh... Oh, now I see the chain you're talking about. Uh-huh. I didn't... And I bet you they salvage that chain from the bottom. That's not, you... a, that, that's not a common link that we see around here. No, that's a very large, heavy-duty one. Ooh. Yeah, it looks like anchor chain they salvaged. Wow, yeah, that's uh, yeah, I, I don't, I bet fatalities are high. They don't talk about in this article, but uh, you know, especially if you're diving 200 feet, uh huh. You know, you know, they don't have computers, they don't have watches, they don't not doing any sort of tables. So you know, they're they're bouncing it. Wow, yeah, Ooh. yeah it's not have, a good place. I was just reading another item. It talked about savage torture and ordinary criminal cases in that same area, but we won't go there. That's a that's a different topic. No, no. There's a lot of, you, know, you just got to remember how fortunate we are to, to be in the parts of the world that we are. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're in North America, which, uh, you know, the U.S. and Canada is, is pretty good. And in Mexico, other than, you know, the, the terrible violence they occasionally have. Uh, Drug-related, uh, usually. Yeah. That's but I think, I, I think is, by and large, it's, it's really not that terrible of a place. But you've got parts of the world where you know there's 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 bad, worse, and terrible. Yeah, I'll be. I'm very content being in this little community where I'm at. Thank you very much. Been to places like that, and glad I do not live there nor have to be there. And I can appreciate their their troubles, but by the same token, we can't fix their problems. No, no, it's. Huh. There's there's another podcast just on, on trying to discuss that. <laughs> yeah, in a different venue, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, scubadiving.com has another article. They're talking about the Blue Heron diving uh, bridge diving community embroiled 
in a fight to protect of the native fish. Texas-based aquarium Moody Gardens accused of stripping famous dive sites of signature marine life. This scuba diving community in South Florida is embroiled in a fight to protect the marine life near the bridge. Issue took center stage this week at the Moody Gardens in Galveston, Texas-based tourist attraction. An aquarium removed several aspects of the popular dive site. The nature of the extraction and amount of species removed is the center of a huge controversy, with many divers claiming that the aquarium stripped the site of almost all its marine life. Moody Gardens remained steadfast in its claim that it followed all the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission guidelines removed was allowed through a permit. Claims that Moody Garden <coughs> excuse me, has collected thousands of fish from the Blue Heron Bridge dive site in Florida are misinformed and untrue, said Moody Garden CEO John Zentz. In a statement, Zent claims a total of 50 fish and 12 invertebrates were moved over the seven-day period and that Moody Gardens followed all the guidelines of the permit. However, local divers claim to have seen more more fish removed. Underwater photographer Jim Abernathy has been outspoken as Facebook page claiming that Moody Gardens did not follow the FWC, which I imagine is Florida Wildlife Commission guidelines. Abernathy stated in a petition that changed that org to the end of the removal of uh, marine life from Phil Forest Park, which is the dive site of the Blue Heron Bridge. At the time of the press, more than 4,800 people signed the petition. Moody Gardens received a permit in September to collect fish, but the permit was amended October 6th to prohibit taking animals from the bridge area, according to the Palm Beach Post. But by that point, fish had already been removed from the site. Technically, it was not illegal based on their permit, but it was unethical, Bill Parks, a member of the Florida Marine Life Association, told the Post. The divers here are livid. Divers have been outspoken on social media, calling for a boycott of the aquarium. Huh. I'm so, curious about the aspect of why he says it's unethical if they had the permit and all the approvals to do this. Well, and I read another article that I, I it almost didn't make the show. I read that, uh, another one, and it had a, a slightly different angle. It was more from the Florida side and it wasn't so much targeted at this one organization, but they did say it was this, this group down there that's really been pushing it on Facebook and that the FWC has stopped issuing permits, not only to this, but to anybody. Uh, Cause you're thinking of how big that is, but they're talking about 50 fish and 12 invertebrates removed over a seven day period. Mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time that that was enough to cause a collapse of the system. Yeah. yeah. So this this is what I don't like about politics and some of these issues is that if something needs to be changed, it's fine. But when it's just a gut reaction to something, you know, something that was legal now because enough people whined, we're going to make it illegal. Uh, you know, it, it seems to be there could have been better ways to go about this. I'm trying to figure out since I'm not really familiar where that is, there was a, is this where they go down and do the macro invertebrate pictures all the time? It may be. I know that that's a popular dive site. Because they had a program at the uh, Diver Showcase the year before last, and it was talk um, grubbing for critters or something like that. And the photography was fantastic, but you're talking items like your fingernail, and larger, and these guys go down there, and you're not moving very much because you're really trying to get some good pictures, and you can do it like two times of a day or between the current flows. Uh-huh. I just wonder if this is the same area. It could very well be. Uh, 
but I, I mean, I'm, I'd like to know a little bit more of the story. I mean, did somebody see a specific damage? I mean, is it like the, they were doing the easiest thing possible, you know, entered the water, took an area, just grabbed everything and then left or, you know, it, it, it's hard to understand without context. So I'm sure we'll hear we'll hear a little bit more about it in the coming weeks. And then Scuba Diver Magazine had a Palau bans toxic sunscreen to help protect their coral reefs. Uh, the law has been signed by the government, which, according to BBC, restricts the sale and use of sunscreen and sunscreen products that contain a list of 10 different chemicals. Researchers say these chemicals are extremely toxic to marine life and can make coral more vulnerable to bleaching. Known as world-class diving destination, the underwater features that include blue holes, drop-offs, caves. Palau is said to be the first country to ban in a place which will be imposed in 2020. The ban will see fines of $1,000, which is about 760 euros, for retailers who break the law. Palau's president, Tommy, oh my goodness, Ramang Gessel, told the BBC the power to confiscate sunscreen should be enough to deter their non-commercial use. I don't know if somebody takes my sunscreen if that's a really super incentive. That's that's pretty mild. Um, these provisions walk a smart balance between educating tourists and scaring them away. Okay, so I see what they're doing. They they just want to say, hey, you can't use that. It's kind of like how we would do at a public beach with fireworks. Uh, according to the report, it is estimated that between six and 14,000 tons of sunscreen wash off people in the reefs every year. 14,000 tons of sunscreen? You know, who, who'd you like? Somebody, somebody had to have an interesting project to do that estimate. Uh, two ingredient scientists are becoming increasingly concerned about the oxybenzone and octanate, ox, was it octanozate, maybe? Octanozate, which are used in the sun protection to do to their ability to absorb ultraviolet light. But these chemicals, which are thought to make coral more susceptible to bleaching. You know, this is what concerns me in some of this stuff. I mean, I, I, you know, there's plenty of safer alternatives, so I'm for that, but which are thought to make coral more susceptible to bleaching. That, to me, doesn't sound very scientific, like it's been reviewed. Isn't there a way that this could be tested? Seems like you could take a tank, you know, a controlled study, and come up with a way. Yeah. So there. I'm sorry, Mac, I'm not hearing you. Neither am I. Oh, can you hear me now? No, you got to love the Internet. It's just a fad. It won't last forever. What do you say, Craig? Are you still recording? I think it is. Oh, this next article we have is out of the U.K., and it says a Lincoln scuba diver becomes a master at 13. Alex Ball from Lincoln is one of the handful of youngsters in the country set to achieve the highest qualification in recreational scuba diving, achieving master level at just 13 years old. The youngest anyone can achieve this qualification is 12, making Alex one of the youngest in the U.K. Having started scuba diving as part of an after-school club at LSST in Lincoln, Alex was instantly hooked. He completed his confined pool skill in the LSST pool and open water course in Girton Sailing Club to qualify as a paddy open water diver. Alex has also completed his advanced water course, rescue, and first emergency rap responder course. He has logged over 45 open water dives. Simon Hodgkins of Stellar Divers was Alex's dive master and instructor. 
I have the joy of knowing Alex since he first ever scuba experienced in his school in February 2017, having been his instructor for most of his journey from absolute scuba beginner to becoming a patty master scuba diver has been a pleasure. Becoming a master scuba diver is a huge achievement and well-deserved, although I am thoroughly looking forward to taking him to the professional ranks and on to patty instructor. Alex has two more courses to complete in December, which will then qualify him as a master diver. Thought they said he was a becomes a master. So what's the difference between master and master diver? Do you know Mac? I think we may have lost Mac. And I would look it up on uh, Patty's site, but I'm afraid that by the time I do that, that would be a problem. And then while we're waiting for Mac, we'll hit the next one, which is a new book is going deep with 60 years of Rolex dive watches. A journey into the deep documents of Riza Rashanadin. I apologize, I'm slaughtering his name. Collection of rare and important Rolex dive watches. It was a labor of love, says uh, Riza, referring to 20 some years it took him to bring together a remarkable collection of 60 years worth of Rolex dive watches. The 36 original beauties are now featured in a book coming out this month, A Journey into the Deep, by fellow collector and authors John. Goldberg and Daniel Bourne. I've been obsessed with collection, collecting all versions of what I consider to be most serious dive watches Rolex ever made. It would be impossible to put this collection together again. The watches are extremely rare, rare, even one of a kind. Finding untouched prototypes like these is like finding hen's teeth. To find a watch in original form, that's where the hunter in me comes in, the man behind the cult favorite, Pro Hunter Rolex site. He did amass such a stellar collection. I had a lot of dealers out there looking for me, he explained. The star of the collection is by far the most important dive watch in the world. When I bought Deep Sea Special Number 1 from Christie's as a world record price for a Rolex. And they have a picture in this article of the watch. Uh, the watch went to the bottom of the Marinera Trench, the lowest point on Earth. No one has seen a uh, Deep Sea Special in this configuration as it is the only one possibly in existence. The number two is rumored to have been destroyed in testing, and the number three, the watch owned by the Smithsonian. Onwards, the watch were modified to allow for deeper dives. We know there are a minimum of five deep-sea specials, as number five is also surfaced, a maximum of eight, as from nine onward, the watches are display models which have little passing res- resemblance to the prototypes that are made purely to be shown in museums or in dealerships, or the like. And you look at the glass on that that watch, and it's substantial. It's just, it's not small. Why was this 50-year-old collector of cars, guns, and animalizer bronzes drawn to the focus on dive watches? There's something in the human condition that makes us go to space or to the bottom of the ocean. That intrigues me. There's a history, and the watch transcends being an object. When he realized the collection was complete, he felt it was time to chronicle it. He appointed R.O. Monteri, <coughs> and I've, I've apologized for slaughtering his name. The note watch scholar and collector has photographed, designed, and produced a number of authoritative reference tomes on watches under the names of John Goldberg, uh, the former owner of the Rolex Cosmograph Dayton Unicorn. Accompanied by stories researched and written by Daniel Bourne, A Journey in the Deep, $800 offers 132 pages, 400 color images, and scuba dive ready neoprene light cover will be available in December, be limited to 500. 
So this book is going to eight hundred dollars for a book, and as a as somebody who works for a publisher, I'm I'm sure that that's a great price. We love to see books that bring in that amount of money. But man, that's a penalty. I guess if you can, it's probably aimed at people who are very interested in Rolexes, probably have Rolexes, and maybe even have ones that are similar to what's in the book. Two of the watches in the book are being sold at Phillips' upcoming auction, November 11th in Geneva. There is a historically important single red sea dweller and caboose dial sea devil made for the Sultan of Oman. Whoever buys the watch is estimated at $1 million and $500,000 respectively. We'll get a copy of the book, a little <laughs> consolation prize. Document the significance of their new purchase. Mac, you back? I'm back. Okay. I don't know if it, it could very well have been my connection that caused the problems, but. I was uh, getting Morse code. I had three different windows open. Everything froze up. I couldn't get out. Uh, and I was getting Morse code again. Last time was Russian or whatever the hell it was. So it's like, <laughs> it's like, they're, they're, I don't know how that remote it. goes, but could I have got this new computer with some interface on it? I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I my normal screen that I get for Infinity is is hybrid. I don't know what happened to it. It gives me half a screen. So I don't know what the deal there is. I'm just trying to get back so I can figure out where you're at. Yeah, I I haven't got, I didn't I kind of skipping around a little bit because I wanted to wait till you got back to talk about the two that were videos. Oh, oh we didn't talk about the conspiracy, so I I figure you'll have a uh, something to comment on this one. It said, "Did the conspiracy rob these treasure hunters of millions of dollars worth of Florida shipwreck artifacts?" And the article goes on. This one's from LiveScience.com. A marine salvage company of treasure hunters discovered some of the United States' oldest European artifacts in the shipwrecks near Cape Canaveral in 2016. Now the finders are suing the state of Florida for millions of dollars in damaging, damages, alleging a conspiracy of sorts between the governments of France and Florida to deprive the company of its shares of the spoil. Global Marine Exploration alleges that some Florida state officials misused their knowledge of the location of the artifacts, including several 16th century cannons, estimated to be worth $1 million each, and colluded with France to help the nation take control of the shipwreck sites and artifacts. Between May and June in 2016, GME divers discovered the cannons and other debris from three colonial-era shipwrecks buried beneath the few feet of the sand in the shallow. The company was operating under six underwater exploration permits for the Cape Canaveral area in the state of Florida had approved. But after the company reported its state <coughs> officials, the shipwreck sites and artifacts became the subject of a legal dispute between GME and the nation of France, which supported in its legal claim by the state of Florida. Earlier this year, a judge in U.S. federal district court ruled that the shipwrecks and any artifacts they contained belonged to France because the ships had been part of the exploration in Florida in 1562 and 1565, which is funded by the French government of the day and led to the explorer Jean Ribault. GME's research suggested ships were Spanish, not French, and that GME would have been able to prove the ships were Spanish if the state of Florida had issued the underwater cover permits to let GME recover some of the artifacts for identification. The shipwreck yielded several rare treasures, including three large and ornate bronze cannons, 14 smaller iron cannons, 12 anchors, and other stone and metal artifacts, live science previously reported. 
Well, the bronze cannons alone could be worth a million dollars each. The greatest find is a marble monument engraved with a coat of arms of the King of France. The artifact matched descriptions of a monument erected in early French colony at Fort Caroline, which is now near Jacksonville, Florida. The lawsuit contended the cannons and monument were looted from the Fort Caroline colony, which was destroyed in a Spanish raid and massacre in September 1565. In that case, the artifacts were on Spanish ships bound probably for Cuba when they sank. Spain has made no claim the Cape Canaveral shipwrecks and Spanish ships might have been privately owned, meaning the Spanish government wouldn't necessarily have a claim to them. The U.S. court, however, decided against GME in the favor of France, which contended the shipwrecks founded by GME were part of French naval officer Rubal's lost fleet of ships, including the fab ship, ship the... Uh, uh, oh my goodness, I'm going to mispronounce something in French. La Trinite, tonight, the lost fleet sank during the storm off coast of Florida in October 1565, a few weeks after Spanish raid on Fort Caroline. The court ruled that under U.S. law, the shipwrecks and artifacts were French government vessels still belong to French after more than 400 years on the sea floor, so they could not be salvaged without French permission. In a news lawsuit against the state of Florida filed on October 15th, GME did not seek to overturn that ruling, but GME CEO Robert Prichette declined to rule out the appeal against the earlier decision. GME showed the court many times it could not be a French vessel. Prichette told the Life Science in an email the judge had no jurisdiction to say it was French. GME is suing the state of Florida for up to $110 million, alleging the state officials misused the company's intellectual property, location of shipwrecked artifacts after GME reported its fines to them. It's the largest court filing. GME alleged the state mis- officials misused their knowledge in order to investigate the shipwreck independently, then collude with the French officials to gain control of the Z-Floor sites and artifacts, thereby depriving GME of investment-backed explorations undertaking salvage operations. Pritchett said that the state of Florida wants to prevent that wants to put private treasure hunting firms like GME out of business, leave all the underwater archaeology be carried out by state subsidized and academic maritime archaeology programs. They're now likely to recover artifacts on the Cape Canaveral shipwreck site on behalf of France. The only reason the region has had any archaeological knowledge is because the treasure hunters do it the right way. It sure ain't from the state and federal archaeologists. They have no field experience. The state of Florida declined to speak to live science about the latest claim for damages brought by GME. A spokesperson for the state said in an email, the Florida Department of State did not comment on pending litigation. For now, the valuable cannons, monuments, and other facts are thought to remain where they are, live lane for hundreds of years, a few feet beneath the sandy floor and relatively shallow water off Cape Canaveral. Pritchett told the Live Science he wasn't aware of any efforts by France or Florida to recover the artifacts, but the area is closed off for underwater operations over the winter during Florida's right whale breeding season. Don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I figured I this is like I you know I've 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 given you kerosene gasoline. Hey, it's alcohol. inside my ten mile freaking limit for territorial <laughs> waters. It don't belong to France. Not to mention it's probably Spanish to begin with. The other aspect, like he was saying in his pleading, was how do you know it's France? We're telling you it's not. So by what judgment did they come up with it's France, not Spain? And I'm looking at the other items. You know what they believe that might be worth in those at that area? 
Well, they said just the one cannon's a million dollars. No, do you know what the worth is? No. 17 billion. They're called the Holy Grail of Shipwrecks. Yeah. Well, but there's a fleur-de-lis. How, that has to be French. Doesn't mean you couldn't have stole it from France. <laughs> they were sort of like at war, Spanish versus French. Well, what, what I, I think... take plunder and I put it on my ship, my ship sinks, it automatically belongs to the other country? I don't think so. Well, Besides, well, it's in my territorial waters, 10 miles. Marty <laughs> should say, hey, it's ours. I'll give 50% to the guys who found it and help us recover it. France goes suck an egg or something. I don't know. <laughs> what I think they should do is, is there should be this whole program, this whole thing's broke. I mean, what is is that 400 years ago? Is that even the same French government? Hell I no. mean, why does the EU take take responsibility for it? Say, hey, you know, we've, you know, none of these countries are sovereign anymore. They're all part of the European Union. It's now the European Unions. <laughs> hey, you, hey, I, I can be a dick too. <laughs> I just, I don't understand whatsoever how we change the normal rules out there. You know, the salvage laws. I find well, it as mine. If yeah. you didn't well, go find it or look for it, how can well, you suddenly say when I found it? Oh, well, thank you. We're going to do that eventually. Well, we've, we've entered the period of time, and maybe it's always been this way, and I'm being naive, but we just want to lawyer everything. Who who can manipulate the rules and everything to get their way? And, you know, you're a state archaeologist. You have no money. Unless you get somebody excited about something, you're not going to be able to do anything. But here's what you do, and this is all hypothetical. You know, you... You get this thing, you know, they're, they're required to report it. They're following the rules, and they go and tell this. And you go, well, crap, I'd love to go dig that up. So what you do is you is you take a look at, at the evidence, and you go, hey, French, uh, you know, technically, under this law, if you're willing to say it's yours, then you'd have control over it, and then you could let us on your behalf go and do this. And then all of a sudden, this agency that maybe isn't funded properly gets some money, to go and dig this up, and then you know, you've got these museums and all this sort of stuff. In the meantime, you screwed over the people who spent the money and the time to find it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's it's the effort. I mean, yeah, there's all the stuff out there to be discovered. I like uh, I like the comments. From now on, oh, the bounty hunters should not cooperate anymore with the U.S. government. They should be encouraged to hide their discoveries and secretly retrieve the bounty. Well, I like I how have they, not a problem with that myself. Well, I, I mean, they're, the they're definitely they're rewarding you for doing that. Well, uh, I, I like the way the Brits did it in the UK. Yeah. Whenever you're you're metal detecting, you find something, the museum gets to look at it, gives a far uh, a fair market value, and then buys it from you. Yeah, how can well, you go wrong? I would definitely show you because you're going to tell me what it's worth. Well, or or even do it, come up with something where you say it's half. So you find it, you know, there's a fair market value. We'll give you 50% because, you know, and then that, just, and that's, that's whoever owns it, you know, whoever owns it, you get half as a finder's fee. And then the rest of it goes to whoever technically owns it. And you let the courts fight that out over however many years. I mean, you're but, out there looking around, you find a Viking ship. Okay. Does it belong to who? You know, it's well, in England. It's on the England waters. Or you found an encampment. There's gold and whatever, and it's Viking. Who gets that? 
Well, the, these rules were all made by a, the, the current interpretation, which is that you know military vessels remain the property of the other country, is is put in by governments who want to have something forever. And that's what it is. It's not representative of the people or for people doing any effort. And as we had the article earlier, I mean, now they're in the now you got people who are just salvaging stuff in the water, and you don't know what it is. They're just cutting it up and putting it out. So this is that's the end that you're heading toward. Well, the other comment, like the American state government, federal government, they're all corrupt. Look at the state. <laughs> they're, <laughs> out there, they're run by the elite and those who have the money to screw the poor. All right. <laughs> Here we go. Well, welcome to the uh, the government obsessed podcast. That will be the the next one. But yeah, I, I figured this one get you worked up. I, I when I came across this, I said, "Okay, we're done. I don't need any more after this one." <laughs> and then we had a couple articles, which are videos, which you know we don't really have a good way currently on the show to show videos. But I thought you might like a Mac. The the first one was. A hunt for World War One legacy of hidden shells, and I did watch the video on my phone. It's amazing; my phone works better than my home internet. Uh, and can you did did you happen to see that one? No, I've just seen it here. I have not looked it up yet. Yeah. So in the video, and it will be in the show notes, which you can find on our website www.scubaobsessed.com. Uh, thank you to for uh, Jim Billings for uh, keeping that up to date, and also Patreon supporters. Uh, they get it a week early, and then everybody else gets, can go and review on Patreon or post a week later, which if you happen to like the show, we could use some of the money because we had a big hosting bill coming up here in the next month uh, You know, for less than a cut price of a cup of coffee, and depending on where you get it. Uh, you can help the show and keep us on the air. So that's a big bill coming up. But uh, uh, the, the shells, what they're doing is they're, they're in a river, uh, it looks like there'd be someplace over there in Europe and it's from World War One. and the, the Germans towards the end of the battle just pushed all their ammunition into the river. So they're pulling up live ordinances out of this river and they're still occasionally having some, some sad situations where people are, are perishing because of the, they detonate. But in this particular case, they're just looping them in ropes and they're pulling them out in the video just one after another, all this, it's almost like a bandolier of uh, artillery shells and the volume. And I can't remember without watching the video again, but I want to say it was like 40,000 tons. They were pulling out a year still. And they said that, uh, you know, in another hundred years, they should have it all cleaned up. <laughs> this must be in France too. Right? It did. The, the town name did appear to be French river muse. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just took a look at the picture. Those are rather, I mean, the assorted sizes. Yes. All the it way is. down from huge monsters down to, I can pick it up in one hand. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what they were showing. They were bringing them up. But they were bringing, I mean, it wasn't like they were bringing up an occasional one. That What it looked like they did is they, they had to rope along the bottom, and then whoever was diving was just kind of like looping, tying, looping, tying. Yep, yep. And, and they're just, they were just pulling them up. And it was... I mean, some of them are rather large. Uh, very large. Yeah. I cannot imagine they're active, but I'd be damn careful. I was looking at the, some of the noses. The fuses are not there on the yeah. rather large ones. Yeah, and, I mean, and that one's bigger the guy's leg. Yeah, and they did say that they're, they're fairly safe, uh, but there have been cases, and I don't know how recent it is, but there have been cases of people who perished 
uh, diving on these. Really? And, and, and it looks like an exercise they do. I'm, I'm guessing it's a group of people like how we do river cleanups that these guys get together and, and pick these up. But I was just thinking, all I can think of is the old uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon where they got Bugs Bunny and he's uh, hitting the top of the shells. And when they don't go off, he writes dud on them. So. Aha. Yeah, I was just looking at the layered, layered. That's, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And then the other video I had uh, was breaking underwater or breathing underwater using wind power. And this is from Hackaday, which is a site I enjoy. It's a lot of a maker community of building stuff. And this is somebody who built a windmill out of PVC, and he had come up with this kind of compressor-type system, and he was actually doing kind of like a hooker rig. So he had a pontoon boat with this windmill on it, and the wind's blowing the blades around that are made of PVC, and it's not a small piece. And these, it's it's basically compressing. You know, there's six cylinders that, as it rotates, it compresses these cylinders. And he's getting a significant amount of volume, and he's able to dive with. It. Yeah, so I was I looking at the picture of him. What he's got is a full face snorkel mask, and that mm-hmm. the hose is going down into the top. Yeah. So he has it hooked in there. But if that's true, unless he's got a nose plug, he can't dive. <laughs> Not past ten feet because it hurts too damn much. Yeah, it, when you watch the video of him diving, and I only watched like the first two minutes, it's about an eight-minute video where he actually goes, uh, it sounds Italian, like he's uh, from Italy. He's got a pretty strong accent, but he's speaking English, so it's a, uh-huh. it's a good video to watch. And he shows you how he built it, which is you know, credit for him for doing it. But a diver who actually knew what they were doing uh, will come up with a little bit different system. I would actually do a... And I don't know what kind of pressure you're able to build up, but it seems like I would have some sort of uh, pressure tank uh, because he. It, it looks like you're diving with a free flow. I mean, he's just got air coming out of that mask like crazy. So if you're actually able to build it up to some sort of pressure. Uh, and you, then want a volume, you want a volume tank on it to get the surges out. If you've ever yes. done that, you can feel it go thump, 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 thump. And the volume tank helps minimize that. And it gives you a reservoir, so when it quits, you don't feel that thump, thump, thump. It's mm-hmm. like, uh, maybe I better go back up now. Well, it was pretty impressive with the the windmill because he showed in the beginning of the video he shows the windmill and he's showing the back end of the compressor, and he's got six cylinders. So every time it makes a rotation, each of these six cylinders is compressed. And when you see the windmill, how quick it's turning, I'm thinking he's got a fairly smooth and constant flow of air. But I would certainly have a tank uh, just to get it up to some sort of pressure. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it right now, and uh, he obviously is not bothered by the pressure because he is greater than probably. It looks greater than ten feet from what I'm looking at. Yeah, but he, he's definitely under thirty feet. But he's he's got a lot of air volume. But yes, he it, does. That, that would drive me nuts diving with that that uh, mask and the amount of air that's flowing out of it. But, uh, phew, I mean, that, uh, credit to him for what he's doing. And I think it's in, it's in, it's an interesting approach. And there, there's so many it ways. Absolutely, you, absolutely is. That's yeah. it. I'm, I'm going to have to look at this again because I'm going to save it because it's basically got all the details if you build one yourself. Oh, yeah. He shows you in the video how to build it. And what I would think is that you may be able to do, I mean, he's doing air compressing, compression, but you could even do it like a hybrid where you do it as it's, the windmills producing electricity 
and then you use the electricity to run the hooker rig. Yeah, I'm looking at the pump. If you freeze frame it, it's got the sticker on the side, so you could actually, I'd have to get it a little better. But it's got, it, it tells you the pump and everything right here. Yeah, yeah. That is pretty. Well, and you're right. He's got one heck of a of a air current out there because yeah. the blade's just whipping along pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And, and that and that's kind of the spirit of Hackaday. It's it's one of those websites I love. Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm really for the right to repair and the build and do things. You know, we, we've gotten into an economy where, you know, you know, don't, don't wash your utensils just buy plastic ones every, uh, there's just, there's just so much waste that we don't need to have. Uh, yeah. I wonder if that blade turns fast enough that you get hurt. You could hurt yourself with it. Uh, because we, he shows you how he makes it. He takes a, uh, it looks like about a three inch piece of PVC pipe and he draws a blade silhouette out of it. And that's what he's using for the blade, which is pretty nice. Yeah, and it's good video too. Yeah, yeah. Nice so, clear water there. Yeah, well, the, the, there you are. Being uh, Mediterranean, it'd be beautiful. Another one of my bucket list places. Yeah, that was nice. That's a good. That was a good article. I like that. Yeah, and uh, it may have been while you were gone, but did you see the book on the uh, Rolexes? Yeah, I had looked at something on that the other day. Wow. And, you know, like, who really has a a Rolex type watch anymore? Who really needs a uh, the diver or the pilot watch because everybody's now digital. Well, and this is purely, a, many of these are purely a collector's items because yep. these deep sea special number one, I mean, they only made eight that actually even worked. And then he talked about, uh, what was it? Uh, number two was destroyed in testing. Number three is at the Smithsonian. He bought number one. Uh, and then everything from, uh, nine onwards were just display models in the store for marketing. So there, there wasn't many of them. Uh, I still can't help but say it's cool, but uh, not many of them. And in an $800 book, you've limited the book. Of course, if you buy a half million dollar watch, they're going to give you the $800. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and you covered the one about that scuba diver? Uh, Lincoln scuba one? diver comes master at 13? Yeah. Uh, and, and normally I'm really... I kind of lean with you where it's like, don't go too young. But I have to say, just listening on how uh, excited, ambitious this diver is, provided they're they're staying fairly shallow and being responsible, I, you know, I can certainly understand it. You know, the passion and the interest in scuba diving. I mean, we've all, at least uh, many of us have been, have been bitten by that bug. Well, I'm just looking at the one set of gear he has. And... Obviously, someone's really helping him out with his dry suit regulators, harnesses. And oh, yeah. He's kitted up really nice. He's got better gear than I've got. <laughs> yeah, he, I tell, it looks like a neoprene dive suit, dry suit. Uh, you know, looking at some of the brands, he's got like a, a Zegel BC. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, congratulations. Good job for him. Yeah. Uh, like, like to see ambassadors of the sport. Uh, the one question that I had, is they're saying he's a master, but then, so it, it says uh, he's completed advanced open water course, rescue, first emergency responder course. He's logged over 45 open water dives. Um, to becoming a Paddy master scuba diver has been a pleasure. Uh, he has two more courses to complete in December, then we'll qualify him as a master diver. So, is there something before Master Diver? Is it Master and then Master Diver? Or are they just announcing that he's going to become a, a Master Diver? 
I don't know what their setup is over there in Europe, so it's hard to say. Yeah. Well, it sounds like he's Patty. Uh, and I kind of always thought that Master was about 50 dive, which I really is, seems to be kind of, you know, no offense to this diver, but it seems to be not enough divers, dives to be considered a master. Well, it's like you say, is a dive instructor more than a master diver? Of course it is. Yes. That's like you can go from zero to hero in, what, three months of training down south, become a scuba instructor, correct? Yeah. So you may have X number of dives, but you don't have that much real-time experience other than training. You know what I'm saying? Well, to me, a master, well, kind of how Patty and some of the other (coughs) organizations have done it, is that master just is like the the top level of non-professional. So if you don't ever become a professional, that's where you peak at as a master diver. But if he's at 45 dives and he's done all these courses, you have to figure that half his dives have been courses. Majority of them probably have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So not not taking anything away from him. Glad he's into it and that excited. Uh, but, you know, it's just not number of dives. It's the quality of dives and getting that experience. Well, uh, it sounds like he has a real good mentor because yes. it sounds like the individuals who are taking him through the ranks and, uh, like they said, looking forward to taking him through the professional ranks and as a PADI instructor. He's got mm-hmm. somebody with him who's really mentoring him well. So he may have exactly. 45 dives, but I bet he has a lot of experience, especially oh, yeah. if you've been mentored through every one of them. You're, you're going to be pretty sharp. And I see, and I work with these kids as a robotics coach. And uh, you, know, you, you have these individuals at 13 and 14 who are just really into it. You know he's absorbing everything he, he can. So, you know, the, the advice you have, yeah, the, the advice you have to him is, is enjoy it, uh, learn as much as you can, and be an ambassador. If you love diving that much, uh, talk to your friends and try and get them out diving because, uh, you know, at some point you're going to be 18 or 19 and, and into it and maybe be an instructor. And it's much, it's, it's fun when you have other divers. It's, it's a great sport and you have all these, uh, social experiences. Yep, so. Absolutely. So, Kudos to him. I wish I, it was me out there diving like he is. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, uh, you know, have fun. And, and it seems to be UK is just, uh, has, has a great diving spirit. Maybe it's just covered a little bit different, uh, but divers I see out, out there. And that does it for scuba the news. And then we go back and, and thank everybody who's in the chat room. They have a great conversation going on. Uh, Karen was saying only $45 dives. And he's going to be a master diver. It's not a lot of dives. I already have more than that. Um, and, and we know that you, we've got Karen and we've got Derek, and then we've got some of the divers who we saw start diving and have become professionals. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, congratulations. It's, it's a great sport and it's, I still have to say it's one of the most relaxing things I can do. And I, I can't wait to get back in the water. We've got dives coming up here. Uh, we're getting in that time of the year. I see that there's uh, last week it looked like people were fighting off colds and, and not getting in. Uh, but we have some dives going on, I think, Lake 16 this weekend. Uh, for the 11th, that is correct, which is yep. good because we got the turkey dive on the 24th. Ooh, so I'm waiting. Been, I, you need to be getting out there and getting your gear ready. I'm, I, I, and I need to get my gear ready. I'm, I'm, I'm sweating it because you're talking about snow coming up. 
and I've got a tarp in the yard and I've got my gear staged underneath the tarp and I'm afraid, uh, I'm afraid it's going to be about two layers thick and stink bugs. So I need to go shake it out. Uh, you know, make sure everything's in working condition, get it in the, uh, uh, scuba vehicle and, uh, have it ready. Yeah. How's the river doing? Has anybody been getting in the river? Uh, it's been wild and woolly and dark. Uh, we had all that rain again last week. So the river has not cooperated whatsoever this, this year. This has been like how we've talked about not having ice dives in the last few years. This is the year where we have had almost zero river dives. I think the the best week we had for the river dive was the ecology dive. So Actually, before, yep, a couple of days before, the week or two before and after, and that's it. Yeah. yeah, so there's not been a lot of river diving going on, which just means that when we do get out there, it's going to look like a completely for, foreign place to us. Yeah, it'll be good, though, when we start over Anybody been getting, I mean, is there any trips scheduled? I, I've heard some grumblings that there might be a Monterra trip coming up in the winter. Well, the uh, Adaptive Diver Week is next week, the 17th, I believe. Uh, that's correct. We had some uh, divers in the dive club uh, finish getting their their certification, which allows them not only to assist, but I think to lead some of the that's uh, correct yep. divers in the waters, which is great. And that's what we need to do if you're interested in that type of program. Uh, we've got divers in the Michigan Underwater Dive Club who've really embraced that and are working. And there's a lot of great organizations that are out there. And I wish I could, but the dive they got coming up, I've, I'm uh, refereeing a robotics competition, so I won't be able to go. Uh, we've got Dive Heart. And that reminds me, somebody on the Facebook page emailed me this week. And uh, their son, is they're saying, is on the autistic spectrum. And they asked uh, some information. So I've done some preliminary research. And uh, Patty does have a page talking about autistic scuba divers. And I'm I'm going to look and report back to him, give him some links on some programs. But uh, I, you know, certainly make sure that you hunt out a dive tr- instructor who's willing to work with them. And you may need to even work with a group such as Dive Heart uh, to get him. Uh, or the adaptive diver group. From yep. Mary Freebed up there in Grand Rapids. Exactly. And from what I understand, my limited knowledge on autism is that I think that diving would be good for autistic type individuals. And it's going to depend on the person. You have you have to have the concentration to be able to, to keep the regulator in your mouth and listen to instructions and be safe. But I think just the conditions of being underwater, I think, would be very favorable to somebody who's autistic. Uh, you know, there's some very intelligent people who are on the t- autistic spectrum. Some may argue that I'm on that spectrum, and I won't necessarily disagree, but uh, I think a lot of intelligent people uh, tend to have some some things in common with people who are on the spectrum. And you've also got uh, some, of the, some people who are autistic, like the sensory situations, and one of them is pressure, and we know that as we get into we have those pressure experiences. And we have somebody in the chat room who's saying that they have a son uh, who's highly functioning autistic and he's a great dive buddy. He loves underwater. So thank you. Uh, and then Karen. So yeah, in the chat room saying I can buddy up with anybody who's HSA certified diver and go with them. Handicap scuba association, autistic kid could get certified as a class C with conditions and be able to dive. So, I mean, that's the thing is you just have to understand what, 
the limitations of your son are, but it's certainly not something out of the realm. So I'm going to send him some links this week. Hopefully he can find an instructor in his particular area. I don't know what part of the country the world he's in, but, uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, it certainly doesn't eliminate you from the potential. You just have to take, make sure you have the proper care because none of us are superhuman in that we can't breathe underwater without the regulator in our mouth and following the proper procedures and training. I think there's also a, uh, Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve meeting on the 25th of November. Ah, I saw Kevin send out an email, so that's coming up. Uh huh. Yep, that's the day after the turkey dive. Okay, I'm I'm all for that. I'm I'm glad to to get that uh, to get everything going. I know Kevin's Kevin and his uh, what, what's the correct term? Significant other interest is uh, she is. Uh, I think she's out dived about everybody in the club. Other than Kevin, maybe. I was going to say other than Kevin. <laughs> yeah, because he's been there all along. And Kevin's been getting some awesome dives in, so congrats and you know, envious of Kevin. But uh, you know, you, you, if, you, if you're not making time, you're not getting the water, you're missing out. And I certainly yeah. have been missing out. And I, you know, I'm starting to have a feeling that we may go from a late summer to an early winter. So we could be having some ice dives. I don't think we're going to have ice. Before January, I guess that that's my modified prediction. But I think uh, we should be on track for a mid-January ice and maybe some ice dives. It would be nice. We haven't had a good one. Well, we yeah. still got the New Year's dive. Uh, yeah. Whether or not in ice or not, I don't know. But last year, you know, it turned in two weeks. Yeah, it doesn't take long. Uh, in the last two years, like Michigan's been pretty well open, and the water level's high. Normally, it takes that ice cover to keep the water from evaporating. Evaporating, evaporating, um, and then do we have any uh, dive shows going up? I know that uh, I think uh, I saw in the chat room. Karen said there's a dive show coming up in Ohio. Is that this weekend? I wasn't aware of any this late in the year, or at least a seminar. Let me see if I can scroll to. Karen was online. She can tell you. Yeah, I thought there was something coming up. Yeah, they're going to Shipwrecks and Scuba Conference in Sandusky, Ohio this weekend, which the website is shipwrecksandscuba.com. And the person from the lower half of the globe is saying he wished he could be there. And as long as the roads are not too snowy, uh, she's going to be there. So if you happen to be there, uh, give a shout-out to Karen and her mom, who will be showing up. That's That's one of those I haven't had the pleasure of going to yet. Yeah, she's saying shipwrecksandscuba.com. So if you like to follow us in the show, we're on www.scubaobsessed.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. We're on Twitter, at scubaobsessed. Uh, uh, Mac, do you have any safety tips for this week? Well, we have one. It's uh, the most common factors contributing to diver fatalities. And the Dan Diving Fatalities Workshop gave the top three root causes leading to diver fatalities are Pre-existing disease or pathology in the diver, poor buoyancy control, rapid ascent slash violent water movement. Now, in this ascent, all three of these are completely avoidable. In fact, if a diver respects the safe diving practices taught in scuba diving, none of these factors should be a problem. For example, before beginning diver training, all prospective divers 
or given a scuba, a scuba diving medical questionnaire, which they say, if answered truthfully, should bring up any medical problems that could predispose a diver to injury or death, such as lung disease, heart issues. Now, they've referenced, of course, some divers do lie on these medical form releases and ignore the warnings not to dive with contradicted conditions. And then furthermore, a diver may develop a medical problem that is contradicted to diving after certification. And they basically say the diver really needs to look at these medical questionnaires periodically, take them very seriously, even after becoming a certified diver. Uh, The second item they talked about is poor buoyancy control. They said it's still an issue with many divers. And they say, well, who is to blame for the issue? Is it the divers had poor buoyancy control or the instructors who certified them? Said, in any case, plenty of certified divers no longer or never did understand how buoyancy compensator works, how pressure changes on descent and ascent affect buoyancy. If the subject is unclear, the diver simply hasn't developed the physical ability to control their buoyancy properly, they need to practice perhaps the scuba diving refresher course before attempting to dive again. At the minimum, get in the pool and practice. The third item they talked about was rapid ascents are frequently due to poor buoyancy control. In some cases, divers simply panic and rocket to the surface. This is totally unacceptable. If water in the mask makes somebody panic, they should practice flooding and clearing the mask in the pool until it becomes routine and not threatening. If your buddy constantly strays far away that it's impossible to alert them into an emergency situation, get a new buddy. So the diver who checks his pressure gauge and services with a reasonable reserve of air in his tank is highly unlikely to run out of air. If the water is so rough that water movement is going to be an issue, don't dive or get out of the water. The moment difficulty in current surge or chop is experienced. Why get out there and get yourself exhausted and then drown? It's a uh, Dan report goes on to explain that some of the leading contributing factors are buddy separation and inadequate training slash experience for the dive being attempted. Both are not per standard uh, safe diving guidelines. I would think mostly the inadequate training experience, meaning you start doing a 110-foot dive and you've had nine under your belt. Oh, yeah. That yeah, would be that... something. And, and I know of people who have oh. done such a silly thing. Yeah, and, and that's a tough one. Because uh, you know, as an informal dive organization, you have people uh, – you know, we're always looking for those those new divers, and you, we just you know people are responsible for themselves, but we have to caution them. If you're if you're new, uh, you know, diving to deeper depths, to all everything's magnified. Any any problems, any risks you have are much worse the deeper you go. So you need to get that buoyancy under control. So items two and three to me uh, seem to be the the same. I mean you. You know, rocketing to the surface quickly is is a result of not having good buoyancy control other than the, the panic situations. Right. You, you need to work through that uh, and recognize it. You know, be honest with yourself and ask a buddy. You know, ask, an, you know, if, if you've got 20 dives in, find somebody who's got 120 dives in and ask them what their honest opinion is on what your buoyancy control and don't take offense if they say, you know what, you really could work on that. It, for me, you know, uh, my, my dive buddy Jim at 22 dives was twice the diver I was at 100 dives. It just didn't come as natural to me. And 
and he's been a friend of mine for 30 years. And he's, you know, if you're going to pick up a video game, he could two times pick it up. It took me 20. It's not to say I didn't eventually catch up to him and be as, as competent as he was. It just didn't come as natural to me as and I had to work at it. And that could be the same with you as diving, is that you need to get that buoyancy under control. And I'd like to think that now mine at 200-plus dives, is uh, my buoyancy control is, is on par with him. And I've actually dived a lot more recently. He's, he's been a little bit off. And I bet you right now we're not too far apart. Uh, so that's important. And then Karen in the chat room was talking about uh, the problem is that if you're on, honest, you need a doctor's clearance. So for item number one is when you go in for your annual physical, and you should be going annually, especially if you're over 40 years old, talking to your doctor and say, you know, I'm a scuba diver. Do you have any concerns with that? And uh, she points out that uh, many divers have no idea on scuba diving. I'm blessed in that my uh, medical doctor is a scuba diver. Now, I, I give him grief because he hasn't been diving regularly because he's got kids at an age and it hasn't allowed him to do the trips. He's one of those warm water divers, but at least he knows what it is. And uh, he knows I dive, and if he had any problems, he would have no problem in in, uh, telling me, you know what, until you get this addressed or we get this addressed, you should not be diving. So find that type of diver, uh, of doctor, and talk to him and find out if if you're in physical condition. And things like diabetes, uh, anything that is affecting your ability to breathe, you know, your uh, circulatory system, any kidney, liver disease things, you need to check with your doctor and get cleared to know when you can dive or what you need to work on. And for me, it's nothing that dropping 150 pounds wouldn't solve. Well, the other items I do talk about, they're talking about common diving illnesses. Uh, Some of the most common diving-related illnesses are ear barotrauma, decompression sickness, and pulmonary barotrauma. But all of these conditions can usually be avoided with proper training and preparation. Uh, bottom line, take-home message about scuba diving risk. Is scuba diving dangerous? It all depends upon the diver's attitude. Divers who treat their scuba training as a do-it-once-and-be-done and then fail to review dive theory and practice basic scuba skills, especially after periods of diving inactivity, and by this, they also meant a short period of diving activity, not diving, such as six months, you are much more at risk of a diving injury than divers who keep their skills current. Yes. Similarly, divers who embark on dives that are beyond the parameters of their training level are also at a higher risk than divers who take their training limitations seriously. For example, most open water certifications qualify a diver down to 60 feet, no deeper. Advanced open water is down to 130. So if you haven't had advanced open water training, why are you going past six? If a diver wants to go deeper, there are courses for that, and he should take it. For divers yeah. who approach diving with an attitude of respect and conservatism, the risks are minimal. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with that. And what I do is if I haven't been diving in a few months, I don't make my next dive 120 feet. Well, I'm we talked start- about this before, remember? We said that you plan the dive according to the lowest experienced diver in your crew. I mean, if you're boat diving, it should be planned around that one person because that would be and should probably be your weakest link. That's the one you don't want to break. Yeah. And and I have skipped dives this season 
because I haven't had the bottom time to be able to go to the depths that the other people are going to. You know, there's an Ironside dives that we like to do probably about the May to June time frame. But if I haven't been diving the shallower wrecks, the uh, the South Bend or the uh, Rockaway, the Rockaway or the Havana, if I haven't gotten those dives in, I'm not going to jump right to uh, the Ironsides or the Ann Arbor number five. I, you know, you've got to get those shallow dives in to go there. And I'm not going to hold back my other divers. Now, I, if I had the, the time open, I would certainly go and be the surface support or help out or do other things. But I'm not going to get in the water and have them worry about me because I haven't been able to get in. And it's not even, it, you know, part of it is you. You have to be in a condition to dive and have the experience to dive. But it's also your gear. Your gear, if you haven't worked your way up to it, you're not keeping your gear serviced. When you go and do that deep dive, do you want to find out that uh, the the 12 weeks it's been since you've been in the water that you're going to have a free flow at 100 feet? You know, every, everything, you know, how at 100 feet on an 80, how much time do you have before that free flow has emptied your tank? Not a lot. So you want to make sure and you test and validate your gear at much shallower pressures, keep it serviced, uh, which brings us to this time of the year. Your, your dive shop would love to see you come in you know here we are in november in the northern hemisphere so a lot of people are putting their gear away if you're putting your gear away give it to the dive shop and have them service it you know it's hitting their slow time of the year we want to hit march and april for those people who avoid the ice diving which is some of your best diving do uh, you, you want to give them something to do because uh, you don't want to get to to be march or april and find out your dive shop closed because of lack of business yeah so I guess I guess I should get off my soapbox. Maybe it's a little bit too much rum. <laughs> <laughs> so you got anything you want to plug before we, we head out of here? Nope. I've got my little safety blower bed. I'm pretty good. Yep. And uh, we've got some interviews coming up. I've had some people. I've got a book. Uh, somebody sent us a link to earlier, and they're going to get a hard copy out to us, so we'll be able to take a look at it, talking about some underwater photography. If you have people you want us to interview, I've got a list of about 100 names, and it's so daunting I haven't done any of them. So we need to identify some of these people you want to you wanna talk to. Uh, uh, follow us on our Facebook page. Uh, Steve Lewis has a dive. Uh, he's not coming in the United States currently, but if you want to go out and do one of his dives with him, he's on Belle Isle. Uh, he's a friend of the show. He doesn't pay us anything, but we like to see him do well. So uh, if you want to dive with some of the best divers, you've got him. You've got John Chatterton who frequently does dive instruction down in Florida. I mean, these are legends in the dive industry. You should be uh, diving with them if you want to take it to the next level. Uh, great guys, uh, very personable. You want to go ahead and dive with them. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, somebody I'd personally like to interview is Jill Heinerth. Uh, she's on my short list, and I don't know how we've missed her all this time. We have Laura from out there in Seattle, a great uh, videographer and photographer. Well, I'd love to give an interview. So we've got things. And then also, uh, don't we have a show coming up with uh, uh, Taurus? Uh, he's going to be doing a presentation. I have not scheduled that yet with him, but uh, once they normally don't set their schedule until January. Mm -hmm. And when they do, I'll try to find out what date he will be yeah. available for the Morton House Museum. So after he's he's done his speech at Morton House and he's cleared to talk to the mere mortals such as us, we'll get him on the show again uh he's 
he's he's a great uh interview i love i've loved talking to him and seeing him out there and i'd love to see him uh get some support you know what he was saying was it only a million dollars to to do one of these uh submarines for conservation yeah a million and a half uh needs a corporate sponsor that's what he'd like to have yeah if you're you're you got to have a place for it when you're done yeah, if you're Oracle or your Facebook or the Museum of Science Industry or a combination of all of the above, uh, you know, the, these are going away. You know, they, they won't last forever. Freshwater preserves a lot, but every year is one less year. So uh, it'd be nice to get some of these things preserved. Well, let me see. I do have a joke for this week. So uh, let me get down to it. There's two of them. But I think I will probably stick to one. Uh, I've got to do this on the phone because if I go to the computer, it will die. Okay. Are you ready? Yep. I'm sitting down. So, and this is in honor of my, my wife buying another horse. So this is sometimes how I feel. Once upon a time, there's a rich man that was driving past a farm. He looked over and saw a beautiful stallion staying in the field. The rich man thought, wow, I've got to have him. So he pulled in the farm entrance. He found the owner and said, I want that horse out yonder in the field. How much do you want for him? The farmer said, eh, he doesn't look too good. Nonsense, said the rich man. I'll pay $1,000 for him. But he doesn't look too good, said the farmer. The man sighed and said, okay, $2,000, and that's my final offer. The farmer said the beautiful horse to the rich man. One week later, the rich man came back angry and said, damn you, you sold me a blind horse. The farmer smiled and said, I told you he didn't look too good. I like that. <laughs> and sometimes I'm afraid because uh, my, my wife's got a, uh, that horse she just got. Beautiful thoroughbred. Uh, it, we've, we've got him home, and he is super skittish. He wasn't skittish at their farm, but he's just not like the new location. So hopefully he, he gets in. But uh, that's just how it goes. Yeah. So until next week, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>